Hey folks, Maria here. Before we get into today's episode, we have a correction and an apology to make. In our last episode on anger after Atlanta, I used the term female body in an attempt to describe my experiences of feeling unsafe in certain public situations based on who I am in my body and how I present to the world. After the episode aired, we were very lovingly reminded by someone that using the term female body can present various levels of baggage and barriers to our non-binary and trans listeners. By using the term female body, I was participating in language harmful to trans and non-binary people, and that excludes trans and non-binary experiences of gender-based harassment and transphobia. I'm sorry. Thank you so much for being gracious enough to call my use of language out, and for inviting me and us to do better. We're all on a learning journey together and really hope that this learning experience for us will also benefit our podcast community as a whole. With that, let's get into today's conversation. Welcome to Resetting the Table, expanding imagination around race, place, and faith for our collective liberation. I'm Celine Chuang. I'm Maria Mulder. And I'm Trixie Ling. We host this podcast from the traditional, ancestral, unceded Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh territory, otherwise known as Vancouver, Canada. Acknowledging the land is one way we want to commit to decolonization and begin each episode in a good way, expressing solidarity with the Indigenous struggle for rights, reparation, and sovereignty. Today we're talking with our friend Kathy Kwan who works in Equity, Diversity and Inclusion, or EDI, in Vancouver. Kathy has a background in systems engineering, so her speaking, advocacy and EDI work are all grounded in the systemic, how systems affect people. We're excited to share this conversation on Asian identity, embodiment and the gift of queerness. With that, let's get into it. Okay, so Kathy, we like to ask this question to our guests, and by guests, I mean we've asked one guest so far. You are our <laughs> second guest. Um, so who do you come as today, and how do you arrive? Mm. Yeah, I would say that I come today with a, a lot of different intersecting identities. So I'm originally Korean-American, but I live in Canada. I identify as queer, as Christian, as a cis woman. And the thing that I th- I think I've, I've started to really, really uh, lean into is the reality that I, I live in the middle of, of quite a few tensions. And that's actually a space that I feel most comfortable, that I feel uh, most safe and whole, which uh, I think is also sort of challenging because I, I imagine most people don't actually really enjoy living in tension and that it is actually typically more of an uncomfortable space to be in. But it's comfortable for me because um, it allows me to actually live into all those different identities that I mentioned. Um, Being a first generation born in America to immigrant parents from South Korea, that is its own sort of middle space. I am uh, children of settlers. I am a settler uh, in the States and now also in Canada. But it's a different experience of being a more recent immigrant and also of East Asian descent. Also recognizing the tensions between um, queerness and a lot of different identities. A very obvious one being my Christian identity. (laughs) 
comes with a lot of tension and a lot of division. I, I remember a conversation with my sister who has actually left the Christian faith that we were raised in. And she, she asked me actually a number of times, she was like, why are you still a Christian? I don't understand why you're still a Christian when they reject your queerness. And well, I've been with on my own, own journey of recognizing that I, I can't actually leave any of those two behind. I, I need to actually live in that tension between these two kind of battling worlds and queerness and, and certainly Korean identity. And, and also I think um, often an immigrant identity across different immigrant experiences. There's, there's quite a bit of tension there of um, legacy and names and family and what that all means. I also just think about like my, my professional experiences of having a background in systems engineering, but being actually quite extroverted and people-oriented, which is a really awkward experience being um, in the engineering school at Berkeley, where starting a conversation was actually quite odd. <laughs> and so I, yeah, just being an extrovert in, in quite introverted spaces, having a um, people-oriented mindset in a lot of technical spaces. There's also just a lot of tension between, I think, the sciences and so technical disciplines and, and uh, faith. And so, uh, again, all of these different identities that I, I really am not willing to leave behind. When I moved to Canada, I guess over 13 years ago, I, I also recognized and was awakened to how different Canada is from the U.S., even though we share a language and a border. And again, I, I find myself not being willing to and not wanting to and not wanting anyone to have to leave behind their various identities and experiences that might otherwise seem discreet and distinct and, and live in tension. So I, I come today with uh, a lot of tensions in my body and, <laughs> and the joy and the beautiful experiences, um, but also kind of the, the tricky experiences and challenges that come um, those intersecting identities. Mm. That was a very poetic, like, mm -hmm. cohesive way of introducing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love that. So I'm actually preaching, I'm going to mention the sermon that I'm, I'm supposed to preach tomorrow um, for the Abbey Church in Victoria, just because mm -hmm. I think of what, what you spoke to is actually really aligned with the sermon. And maybe I'll link it in the show notes if people want to view it or read it. But kind of like the thesis statement of the sermon is kind of in a way in a way you embodied the thesis statement of that of the sermon and the sermon is about the transfiguration because tomorrow in the christian calendar in the liturgical calendar is transfiguration sunday and that's when mm. we read and kind of grapple with the story of jesus taking three disciples with him going up to a mountain being revealed in his kind of glorious both human and divine nature which is a hybrid nature um, in the interpretation that I'm kind of exploring. And that being this partial moment of partial revelation. And then a moment that also speaks to kind of the whole of Jesus's life and kind of a hybrid experience of being human and divine being um, meeting even where he meets God in this liminal in between space, like on a mountain between heaven and earth and kind of the, the queerness of that moment is what I'm exploring as well. Like the idea that queerness is, is to be intention in a lot of ways. And that, com that mm -hmm. comes from queer theory. So the idea of like to queer something being to unsettle something 
mm-hmm. or to like ask questions of a binary or a rule or a border, which is more like, I'm getting more like theoretical. But what I mean to say is like, to live in tension and to exist in these many hybrid push and pull, like ebb and flow spaces that you do, I think is actually a very spiritual space. And that's kind of what I'm, mm-hmm. what I'm talking about in the sermon is that queer folks and folks who live in these places of tension and these hybrid identities actually have so much wisdom so much embodied wisdom to teach us about how to relate to God, how to relate to each other, how to relate to the land and like the places that we're in. And this is shown in the story because Jesus actually embodies it. So, yeah, I mean, I say that because I also, I appreciate so much of your kind of embodied lived theology, Kathy, and like the way that all those identities that you talk about and those tensions that you live in inform how you show up to those various spaces, whether it's like work, um, whether it's church and kind of like, speaking truth in those spaces and speaking truth from your own experience. Yeah, thanks. It's Mm -hmm. a fun place to be, also a very awkward place to be, but that's where we are. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I I think, you know, just kind of following with what Celine also said and what really you are able to put into words, I think feelings that I often, um, that tension, right? It's often hard to describe And I think this season of life, I've really learned to embrace the tension, embrace the discomfort. And I think out of that place is where I feel like I can be more fully myself. So, you know, I don't have to be in this binary categories that often we put ourselves in. And I think particularly even reclaiming who I am, like as a Taiwanese Canadian, what that means and a settler. And I think to fully embrace that is that discomfort you talk about. But out of that, it's where I feel like I can connect to more people than ever, which is so freeing when I discover like, who are my people and, and be able to kind of speak into those spaces and fully show up as myself. I wonder, Kathy, how have you been able to kind of embrace attention in terms of like sense of community? Because I think a lot of this tension work, we can't do it on our mm. own, right? And that's why I'm discovering a lot of it is actually how other people help me discover and, and reclaim who I am to hearing kind of their intersecting identity. So I'm curious, like who has been kind of journeying along with you, challenging you, supporting you in embracing this tension spaces that you hold? I love that question. I am so uncomfortable. It makes me feel very uncomfortable because (laughs) I realize that uh, probably over the last several years, I have become more and more aware of the fact that I don't have a quote unquote, my people. And that's totally okay. It makes things challenging in terms of experiencing genuine belonging, or at least not having to try so hard to experience genuine belonging. But the reality is that (laughs) I want to believe that actually none of us really can, can do that without relinquishing some critical part of ourselves or forgetting some really critical and alive or dormant parts of ourselves. And that the more that we actually come into ourselves and make room for ourselves, the more two things can possibly happen, maybe both at the same time in an ideal situation. One is that there's this necessarily necessary alienation that happens but I I want to believe that it serves then to lead to a more genuine 
sense of belonging. I'm thinking of, um, I go to a church called Artisan Church in Vancouver. It started out, uh, I, I think it's over 10 years now, 10 years old. And at some point the church, uh, it didn't split, it multiplied. So what I mean by that is that it wasn't that we had an argument over the color of the carpet and decided to go two ways. It was that we decided to do neighborhood church in two different neighborhoods. And so to expand our sense of neighborhood church into another neighborhood where a lot of folks were actually kind of coming from to attend our church. I stayed with the first location and it was a location that ended up, a lot of folks went to the new location. A lot of folks relocated. I wanna say three quarters of the church relocated to the new location. And then the, um, the folks who stayed behind we were kind of a hodgepodge group of, <laughs> I, and I, I say in the most endearing way, I think that all of us had the thread between the lot of us was a relationship with our awkwardness and uh, an ability to express our awkwardness and, and live with our awkwardness without too much awkwardness. <laughs> and uh, it, yeah, so I, I wouldn't go so far as to say that we were diverse, Artisan is a white church and ethnically there's no real other way to describe it, but there was more racial diversity at that location than at the location that was much larger. And, and then there were a number of other kind of diverse demographic identities that were represented there, whether it was age or stage of life or socioeconomic. And what was also not coincidental about that fact was that of the, the two pastors that stayed with that original location, one of them was a single black woman. And the other three pastors, uh, two of whom went to the new location, were all um, straight white men, married. And so I think recognizing that we had a person of color, a woman of color in leadership visible to the folks who walked through that door, that materially changed how we showed up for one another. And it was this constant direct and indirect signal to all of us that there was room for us. And we embodied that for one another. And it was almost like, because none of it, there was not a sense of homogeneity of like, this is what it looks like to go to this particular location of artisan. It meant that actually all of us felt welcome. All of us fit in because there was no way for us to create a click, a sense of like, this is, this is, these are the in people. And then we're including, we are the includers and then we're including other people. We were small enough and different enough in that smallness that all of us had this sense of like, yeah, I belong here because none of us really belongs here. And so all of us does. And I think about that community as kind of like this microcosm of what we could have if we were all actually allowed both by ourselves and, and our, our social circles and, and by the world, I guess, at the end, to actually be in touch with and express all of those things that make us uniquely us, as opposed to being sort of forced into with fear of being alienated or boxed out or ostracized 
to relinquish certain parts of ourselves and to be sort of pressured into homogeneity. Is that real belonging? I, I don't actually know. And my kind of like idealistic self wants to say, no, <laughs> that's not real belonging. <laughs> um, and others may disagree, but yeah, that's been my experience is that, I, you know, there have been, there has been a time, many times probably actually, where I've been trying to find my people. And the reality is that that does not exist. And, and that I, I don't want to find my people. I want to both see myself in my fullness. And I want to invite others to see the fullness of who I am. And I want to see the fullness of other people and welcome the fullness of other people and not just those parts of another person that I'm familiar with or that I can identify with. And so thereby close the circle a little bit more. So a really hard thing to do, I'm saying this and like, you know, it's not like, oh, I've achieved this <laughs> impossible task. But yeah, I, I think having a lot of identities that are representative groups that have otherwise rejected one another. It has forced me, not out of my own nobility, but it has forced me to live into this, this um, other ideal in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. It makes me think particularly of queerness and Christianity. Yeah, just I, I know in my own journey, when I was coming out as an older teenager, and I, for a while I chose to reject the church and try to find my community amongst the queer folk. And then after about a year of doing that, I realized that I couldn't do that because there were all of these parts of me that were not being attended to mm -hmm. by that particular mm -hmm. community. And so I am wondering, I know in previous conversations, we've talked about queerness as a gift to the church. And I am wondering about kind of specific ways that you have seen that in your own context of where your own queerness or other people's queerness has been a gift and an offering and a blessing to church communities and also other communities that may choose to actively reject us. Ah, hmm. oh, gosh, gift. I, well, the first thing that comes to mind is I think that there are actually many gifts that queerness brings to the church. The, the first thing that came to mind, though, when I, I'm kind of like interpreting this word gift is more into the space of the prophetic. It is that I get so maybe one way to say it is that the gift is to inject disruption that is needed by the church. Mm -hmm. It's injecting disruption into complacency into mm -hmm. like an environment of complacency, of apathy, of death, of myopia, of self-involvement, of individualism, of idolatry. Each one of those words probably could <laughs> do a separate podcast on. But there are so many ways in which queerness forces, if a church is willing, if a Christian community is willing, it forces that community to ask the questions that it has been taking for granted. Mm. What is marriage, for example? What actually is it? I, I, I certainly grew up in a context where we 
believed that we were different, but we had in fact subscribed to a socialized understanding of what marriage is. Mm-hmm. Everything from media and romance and you know all of those like finding the one, finding Mr. Right and Mrs. Right. And there's this like one individual out there who is made perfectly by God for me. It's like, where on earth did you find that <laughs> idea? <laughs> you found that in the notebook. I, you know, that's it's not just a, a terrible depiction of, yeah, that of is romantic not, you didn't, yeah, you didn't find that <laughs> in Christianity. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. And, and so we, you know, or even this idea that marriage is a given, that it is the next step. And you go out and you find this person and you start a new family. And that's, that is the next thing that you just anticipate that, you know, parents like praying over their newborn babies about the husbands and wives that they will, you know, and it's like, wow, where did you get that idea? Who said that this child would ever find someone Uh, or that that is even how that, that person would thrive. Mm-hmm. and flourish and and so conversations around um, singleness celibacy marriage that whole space of what marriage actually is it, it, this this picture of like Pleasantville marriage as like 2.7 children a golden retriever and a white picket fence with your own <laughs> vacuum cleaner like yes that is so biblical that is wow what a vision of the kingdom <laughs> that was these these driveways with your own seven cars and or your own condo with your you know 1.5 bedrooms and it's it's such a strange concept uh actually whereas as marriage if you think about all of the visions of of marriage that are kingdom oriented and not just manifest in a particular iteration it's like, what is the wedding feast about? And it's, it, is a, it is about generosity and it is about self-giving and mission and generative, there's a generative nat- nature about marriage. And sometimes that generative nature is, and that creative nature is in the form of, of real biological children new life which is always good i think you know new life how beautiful and also sometimes it is something different that is not the only way of living out what marriage is if if you think about it in a real theological and robust way of what marriage is it it can it is so much more than than the the well maybe it's 1.7 not 2.7 but you know it's like it's so much more than that and it it is certainly includes that but it is not only that yeah and I think about what what is sexuality what what is that all about Um, why is it and so there 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 are so many ways in which queerness can actually force a church to re-examine what exactly it is that we believe, why we believe them, not to put them into question and say that the conventions that we've bought into are all lies and should be completely deconstructed, 
but to actually expand our understanding of what it is that we're up to here on earth and to actually expand our vision of what it means to live together and to bring about new life and to be a source of creativity of a literally like generative creation and a place where things come to be reborn and not to die <laughs> yeah there's there's like this expansive nature of queerness that i think causes a lot of christian folks a lot of fear there's this like fear of the slippery slope as if god does not is not big enough to to handle expansion as if god is not holy enough to reorient us once we've decided to grow mm -hmm. and and that fear keeps us so small keeps us very narrow and allows us to actually develop these small or sometimes quite large idols within our own communities that we actually place in exchange for God because it feels safer mm -hmm. and because we then don't have to contend with the real big questions that make us extremely uncomfortable and actually force us to take responsibility and ownership for ourselves and the decisions that we make. If I just do what my parents did, if I just do what society is telling me to do, if I just do what my peers did next, then I don't have to take responsibility for my own actions. Mm -hmm. I can just say that's what we do next. I don't have to really take the time to discern what am I up to and what decision am I making because I've really taken the time to listen and discern. I can just take all of that out and just do <laughs> what's acceptable, what's not going to be viewed as other or yeah it's like queerness is bravery you know it, it is an invitation into courage uh, mm -hmm. that is severely lacking in my at least my experience of church yeah mm -hmm. it makes me think of I mean we mentioned this a lot in our previous episode about expansive friendship but Mia Birdsong's book how we show up she talks about how, like, if we're going to relearn how to make family and how to live in community, we have to look at queer people of color because they are the people who generated creative ways of living well and healthily with each other because they were forced to because they couldn't fit into the boxes of, like, normal society. Or so-called normal. Normative. Yeah, so-called normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you said, Kathy, about queerness being kind of like a disruptor, like something that confronts people with the boxes that they've created, whether around sexuality or marriage or God, like all of those things. Mm -hmm. um, and I would say, I think you had said like, if the community or the faith community or church is willing, and I think even if they're not willing, I think queer people just being present or like showing up is asking those questions, like regardless of whether, um, you know, those who have institutional power in the church or leadership power, are willing to listen even like being there i think is a questioning of that um so the question for the community is then are they willing to to heed the wisdom that you just kind of spoke to are they willing to tune in to these prophetic questions that are asking really about how do we envision what's an envisioning of the kingdom that is beyond yeah beyond these boxes beyond these containers that we've created for each other and for god and for christian community 
which I, I mean, this is maybe like a little bit like sci-fi, but I love to think about queerness as, <laughs> as being a time travel in a way, like that in that way, it's like, it's bringing the future, you know, into what we, where we are now. Like mm. it's, and it's prophetic in that way too, right? Like it's, mm-hmm. um, and it's sacred work and it's so often regarded as antithetical. Antithetical or intention, as you said. Um, and when that tension does bring forth like life and it's generative and it's creative and it, it's disruptive in ways that I think are very spiritual and very Christian, but that's me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah. I love, I think what you said, what really hit me um, is the call to courage that you know, queerness call us to be brave. And I think if anything, more than ever, we need those brave spaces and people in our church, not outside mm-hmm. our church, as in like challenging the system, asking the questions, uh, the systems that we find ourselves, system of oppression, colonization, white supremacy. Like this is where I think I'm learning and seeing the bravery and courage of particularly queer folks just speaking up and speaking into the space. And, and I'm called to think deeply like what is my responsibility what is our call to action and and I think often there's lack of that kind of responsibility and that accountability in the church space and so I am just encouraged by by you and with just what you said Kathy and that call to courage because that's definitely much needed in the space of silence and complacency and and apathy yeah for sure I in a lot of ways if I really get too far maybe it's not too far, but if I really start thinking about it from time to time, it makes me actually quite sad for the church and uh, certainly the communities of the Christian communities that I have been exposed to over the years. When, When we live in that fear and when we live in those smaller spaces, it actually really constrains our experience of God as well. And that is a sure way to a smaller faith and uh, mm-hmm. uh, to kind of take a page from, um, I want to say some business books, but it, it's sort of this idea of like, if you're not growing, you're dying. Mm-hmm. And um, there is no neutrality. We're always, we are constantly dynamic. There is no static life. And a church is either growing and not by numbers, right? It's, it's either growing or it's dying. And that isn't to say that certainly there are always individuals who are struggling within a church and, and those who are, are growing regardless of that church, but as a general statement. And I, it, it breaks my, my heart to think that our fear of, of that we've adopted and our complacency that we have adopted as as Christians is limiting our access to God and therefore limiting our access to faith and therefore limiting our our capacity to actually bring in the kingdom and participate in what's happening. I often think to myself that God is elsewhere, that God is often not in churches because God is at work where the work is willing to be done and where there is no fear. And right now I see that outside the church quite often that God is using others who, whether they recognize it or not, are in lockstep with the spirit and are doing the work of doing kingdom work. (laughs) And God's like, Oh, look over there. Great. Let's go over there. (laughs) I don't need, (laughs) I don't need the constraints of Israel. I will work wherever. 
wherever there are my creations that are conducive to the work of the spirit, there I am. Mm -hmm. And obviously there's something very particular and sacred about those who then turn and recognize who is responsible for the work that is being done. And that's the tragedy, right? Is that those who would don't <laughs> and, and those who, who are in, in the work can't. So it's, it's just this like strange um, twilight zone that, that maybe we're always in, but I, I experienced that in this generation and this time in of my lifetime. Like, where is God? Is God, you know, like we have this amazing history of like education, starting schools and like opening up hospitals and being the hand and feet of God, you know? And, and then I'm like, where is the church right now? Um, we are having battles about whether evolution is real. We're talking about whether marriage equality can, you know, and, and we have our heads in the sand, <laughs> completely heads in the sand. And then, you know, I'm thinking about the states and those who say or somehow profess Christianity, but certainly in no way, shape or form actually seem to have a relationship, a real relationship with true faith and the spirit of reconciliation. There's a break there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think for me, it's been helpful to think of, like to trace back when looking at our moment now, I mean, in relationship to the church and all of its kind of inherent histories of both violence and peacemaking, of both, you know, being a hand of healing and also a hand of, yeah, of violence and colonization and even genocide, like all those things being both, both parts of like what the church is in the world. And like, I think of what you said, Kathy, like I think of almost like, and there's not just two, but how the church then fits into like two streams or even like two ways of being. Again, like this is just for my, I like to like visualize things. So I think this, this helps me think of like the question being, where is the church and how it is maintaining categories, maintaining hierarchies, being static, refusing to change, choosing fear, choosing empire, mm -hmm. choosing power. Mm -hmm. And yeah. when, and then on the, on like the flip side or the converse side, like then where is the church willing to be led by spirit, be led by movement, be transformed and transform others and the world and conditions around the people who are marginalized. So it is kind of like, for all of its inherent kind of contradictions and tensions, just talking about church, because it's a reflection of like people, right? People in the church and, and the history of the church. Mm -hmm. I think it's for me, it's been helpful to kind of distinguish just for my own self, right? Like, here's where the church is, like, doing the work of fear and violence and containment and category and like you were talking about the states as kind of a very visible manifestation of that where it's very much aligned with power and empire and whiteness and toxic masculinity and all these forms of systemic violence and control and where is it doing the work of rupturing that of moving to dismantle that right and often that's not like you said in church settings but I think yeah like you like you spoke to that's where the spirit is and so then it's like, if the church has a whole complicated, messy and flawed institution, like we're to ask that question as well. How can we change to be aligned with spirit, to move towards justice, to move towards love? Like, I wonder what radical things would happen, but I think it's also impossible to extricate the church from the institutional power it holds, right? Mm -hmm. So all that to say, speaking of tensions, right? Like the church is 
is tension. The church is kind of contradiction. But often I think it doesn't recognize the tensions that come so so much part of being being a Christian church. Like so often we are given these things as defaults or as unquestioned or, or often like I've been thinking about the ideas of like people calling for unity, for example, making, making requests for using language of being family across difference, which is important, but isn't the same thing as family members causing harm to other family members. Church is a complicated and contradictory thing. Yeah, maybe I'll leave it there <laughs> for as a response to what you said. <laughs> yeah, and I think it's often surprising, like Celine, when you were kind of articulating the maybe dichotomous way that church can be. I think often people are surprised that the work of the kingdom and the disruption, the good disruption and the good work is being found at the margins. And that shouldn't be surprising to us because that's always how it's been, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like we, if we go back to the gospels, you know, like the kingdom of God was brought to the margins and that's where the work has always been done. So why wouldn't it be the case now 2000 years later mm -hmm. yep and also I love Kathy what you talked about with people being dynamic creatures like us being creatures of change and that should form the church and how we change and transform and the church being any kind of faith community too that we're part of or not part of because I think that reflects to our relationship to you know this planet that we live on and how so much of creation all of creation is dynamic and constantly being transformed. And kind of this idea that we have to stay in one place or like maintain a specific doctrine to be Christian or to be Christ followers or to be people of faith. This idea of separation and being individual and being, I think the word that I, I'm recently learning about is anthrocentrism, being like humans at the top, right? When really there's so much to learn from, from creation and from indigenous folks who are much who have always kind of had relationship, radical relationship, well, it's radical to us, perhaps, but relationship to land and to plants and to our non-human relatives. But I think that kind of ties in, right? Like that ties in how we then relate to one another. So if we relate to one another with the understanding that we are dynamic and we are changing and we are constantly being transformed and called to transform, like just as the world around us is and like nature and land are, then that also is kind of, if I may, <laughs> a queering of the idea of static category, of hierarchy, of rigid doctrine, like all those things that are about containing and about fear. Mm. So I'm, what I mean to maybe draw out is like the connection between um, the idea that we're relational creatures, we're relational people, and that the earth is relational, like creation is relational. So as we lean into that, that helps us, I think that helps us relate to one another in more whole and more generous and generative ways. Mm -hmm. I think what you just said just continue to make me think about what does embodiment look like, right? And I think often my experience in the church in the past has been very much like that detachment, like a lot of it's so much in the head, the doctrine, it's about knowing, right? And doing perhaps serving, but not so much like the being and being in relationship to each other, to the land, to our community, to our neighborhood, to God, and I think that's kind of what I'm trying to slowly learn, to relearn. How do we embody this, who we are and that dynamic intersecting identities that we hold that you often talk about, Kathy? I think particularly in the church, it's, it's, it's so hard because there is that separation and that separation is kind of 
almost awarded and and affirmed. And so how do we yeah disrupt? And part of that I think is truth telling. You know, I, I, I remember you were talking about, I often hear peacemaking and unity and reconciliation, those words that I'm really grappling and struggling with because we can't use those words without really telling the truth. And I think this is where like telling the truth is about like understanding what, what did not connect with us and how do we embody the truth and that often the truth hurts <laughs> and it reveals and it reveals all the, the places that we talked about the tensions and that part of that is the liberating form of like embodiment of living into who we are and the people we surround ourselves with. I'm wondering, Kathy, can it, I'm interested in hearing a little bit more about how you kind of, in your journey of embodiment, if you can talk a little bit more about that, what has that been like for you? Gosh, I, I mean, embodiment is a, a really large area of uh, conversation, of thought. And so there are, uh, I'm really aware, one, that there are a lot of different directions I could go with that question, but also because I've had such a small slice of a of exposure to the conversations around embodiment, it just makes me so aware that when I use that word, I, I don't even have, I'm aware of how little I am have been exposed to with respect to that conversation. But in terms of my own experiences, I think of a couple different things. Um, a lot of it actually, if I can make a shout out to my friend Hillary McBride, who has done a lot of work in embodiment, probably has many, many leather bound books about embodiment on her shelf that she's read all of. Uh, <laughs> and through my conversations with her, through um, some of the work that she has done, one of the areas that has become very clear to me, uh, also recognizing that there was a stream, there was kind of like a concurrent stream as I was having these conversations and being exposed to conversations around embodiment. I was also doing a lot of work, both personally, but also in my communities, engaging these conversations of social justice and equity, diversity, and inclusion. And not always necessarily knowing that I was doing that, but it was really, really part of, a, it was, there was a steep growing period um, a few years back. And because those streams were happening concurrently, one of the things, one of the ideas that Hillary introduced me to, which I, I believe comes from another work um, called Oppression in the Body, by Christine Caldwell and um, Lucia Bennett Layton. And it's this idea of that the body is actually the site of oppression. So we have these conversations around and, and, and have likely heard references to the reality, which is violence against black bodies. And it is certainly not to kind of anonymize or objectify uh, black bodies. It is in fact to say we are our body. We don't have a body, we are our body. And that completely changes the conversation. And that our, our bodies are yes, physical and the, the physicality of it also includes chemistry and biology and psychology and all these um, aspects that are invisible as well. And all of that is our body. And and our body is who we are. We are, <laughs> you know, I, I may have a hand, but also that hand is mine. 
when uh, that that hand is me when when somebody shoulder check my my shoulder they haven't just shoulder checked my shoulder they shoulder check me <laughs> or mm-hmm. uh, you know if somebody punches you in the face you're not like oh it's okay it was just my face <laughs> you know it's like no yeah. you punched me <laughs> and I feel that pain and then I internalize all the psychological effects of that and so and then emotionally as well, as we as we are becoming and uh, more and more hopefully continue to become aware of, is that psychological effects on us have effects on our physical bodies, the way in which we carry stress, the way in which we carry trauma, and all this whole body of work around epigenetics, the way in which we actually carry in our own bodies the trauma of generations before us. Mm, <laughs> yes, so, yes. The conversation around embodiment and how it intersects with oppression and systemic oppression, that is a space that we need to sit with for a long time and that we need to really, 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 really pay attention to as we are in this world that is that has for the last year been awakening in a very particular way. It's not the first time that societies that settler societies or that white supremacist societies have awoken to the realities of systemic racism and systemic oppression in that respect but you know there there's we are in a wave and we have been in a wave for this last year it is particular and embodiment has to be a part of that conversation because we are not just floating brains because we are not just ideas, Mm -hmm. we are actually bodies. And all of the effects, whether it's health, nutrition, uh, violence, and and I think of even environmental and climate impacts, certainly COVID, you know, all of these things, they affect our bodies and they disproportionately affect, negatively impact the bodies of marginalized people. So yeah, embodiment, uh, when I think about embodiment, it, it is this critical conversation that needs to be had in order to inform the type of and the holistic nature of our approach to action and to response and to reconciliation and to healing. I love the word healing because it inherently has within it this, this recognition that healing that reconciliation does not just happen relationally. There actually needs to be healing of entire groups of people's bodies Mm -hmm. (laughs) and the long lasting effect of of embodied oppression in entire groups, communities of people. So this isn't just even an individual, this is aggregated across relationships it is aggregated across the effects of su- substance abuse in communities, the effects of domestic violence in communities. You know, it's just like when you when you crack open the conversation on embodiment, it's suddenly you can't escape it. Mm-hmm. Uh, hopefully, you don't escape it. And once you crack it open, you see that oppression is uh, the side of oppression is our bodies, and mm-hmm. like. Uh, at, at my work, we're having these conversations around, okay, a lot of people because of COVID and its effects 
whether you have COVID or not, it's affecting our wellness. It's affecting our physical wellness. It's affecting our emotional wellness, psychological, social. And wellness has historically this word, it kind of has these kind of stereotypical wings to it, like yoga and cleanses. And it's a very white space. It can Mm -hmm. be. And now we can have a conversation about wellness that is about oppression and embodiment. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's like, uh, yes. you know, I, I, I want to be like, okay, thank you for your $12 juice, but that is not going <laughs> to, that is not what wellness is. Mm-hmm. Let's have a conversation about wellness in the sphere of how all of these systemic factors are affecting the the bodies of oppressed people that is a conversation that is worth investing in that is worth paying 12 dollars for a product right (laughs) it's like put your money there and it's like yes great like juices fantastic Uh, lots of research if it works for you wonderful but don't let it stop there that is not what wellness is Mm -hmm. wellness and promoting our health as a society has to focus on and if we talk about that idea of when you start with the margins you include everyone we all win the further out to the margins you go everyone wins Mm -hmm. and so let's start with embodiment and oppression and we all win so yeah that's that is i i hope that we can talk about embodiment and oppression for a long time across many different conversations <laughs> and not not just you know this podcast and this one episode but I really really think that that this is a conversation that needs to continue across a lot of different disciplines and um, in order for it to really get integrated in how we're responding to to um, our our sort of like our anti-racist action orientation needs to include this conversation mm. I want to say so many things I'm like wow I'm struggling to like hone in <laughs> yeah remembering to breathe and yeah my body. <gasps> wow. my body I am a okay. body <laughs> I know okay I'll say one thing first which ties in to what you said about wellness and then I'm going to return to embodiment I really like that resonated with me when you talked about wellness culture and kind of like this very um white woman oriented consumerist kind of and often individual Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. kind of culture and in that way I think it's just in a way white supremacy or whiteness is appropriating kind of parts of embodiment or like different parts of embodiment that have been in other cultures and bringing them into this kind of wellness culture but there's something that really like brought this out for me a moment an embodied moment like for me was I was walking um, into Chinatown the other day to pick up some snacks from a from a bakery that I love. And as I was walking along one of the streets that is becoming quite rapidly gentrified, which is a very interesting street because there's a new modular housing or, or temporary housing development that's also set up on the other side of the street. Mm-hmm. But there are so many like clothing boutiques, athletic wear stores, coffee shops that are just kind of springing up on this block. And whenever I'm in Chinatown, I think about the gentrification that's happening and I don't just think about it like I feel it in my body as kind of this grief and this this sense of heaviness 
and also at the same time coexisting, you know, with this like this the joy and the nourishment of being in Chinatown and like feeling a part of myself be recognized by the space that I'm in. So all of that is kind of happening. But I was walking down the street and this this white woman walked by me and she was planning a yoga class on her phone as she was walking and I just heard as she walked by me like, oh, and then we'll move into sunrise salutations. And then after that, and she was just kind of planning this yoga session, like <laughs> as she was walking through the street in historical kind of Chinatown. And I, it just brought like, it brought out to me how our bodies and being in our bodies and like embodiment relating to wellness culture, all of that is, is political and is about oppression, right? Like her mm -hmm. white body being in Chinatown talking about yoga taking up space in that way as you know vulnerable Chinese seniors are losing their housing are being displaced are are vulnerable to attack like that's all happening in the same on that same block in those same blocks right and so mm -hmm. yeah it just really brought out to me like how if wellness culture or like things that were for embodiment healing like yoga are when they're brought into kind of this like consumerist white centered wellness culture, then they also are often used to kind of gentrify and, and dominate and take up space um, in an oppressive way, right? So it's like, mm -hmm. let's not do that. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. That's yeah. not yes. what wellness or embodiment is. And they're um, often viewed as neutral as well at the same mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other thing I did want to mention was, um, I think, Kathy, what you're talking about with embodiment also ties into Resmaa Manikin's book, My Grandmother's Hands, which I think was kind of, I'm not sure about like the timeline exactly, but I think the way I understand it, it's often read as alongside um, trauma-informed books, like books about be trauma being in the body, like Besser Vandal Kolk's The Body Keeps the Score, where all these kind of important thinkers who are also white men were talking about trauma being in the body and Resmaa-Manikin then said, well, also oppression is trauma. So how do we talk mm -hmm. about that being in the body? How do we make those connections in not just psychology, not just clinical practice or somatic practice, but also like, I would say like everyday life, like how do we relate to one another with that in mind and in body? <laughs> and I think one thing that I really take from what you said and about embodiment in general is that when we think about it, it then the scope is so is both so close and so far from us. It's so big and it's so small. Like everything that we do, if we think about embodiment and oppression matters. Yes, like how are black bodies being impacted by police brutality and police violence? That is so important and it should be a priority in a conversation about oppression and bodies. And also, it also matters to the ways that bodies are impacted by microaggressions, by like people saying racist shit and, and how your body responds to that and accumulates that trauma over time. Mm -hmm. um, and that's connected they're not separate right like mm -hmm. bodies kind of accumulate trauma and the trauma of oppression and being embodied and learning to heal together learning to heal ourselves is an act of resistance to that I think it's Reverend Angel Kyoto Williams who talks about personal change and social change being connected in that way so so the quote is without inner change there can be no outer change without collective change no change matters so that's by Angel Kyoto Williams, who's a Black Buddhist uh, writer and thinker and embodied practitioner. If I bring this conversation back around to uh, the first thing that we were talking about in terms of queerness in the church, there is something very particular, I think, if I think about then also the 
maybe fear and the myopia aspects, but also the lack of engagement with certain critical questions of how we are called to be in the world as Christians. This question of, of embodiment and oppression, um, I, I think of embodiment essentially as this conversation that we don't know how to have in the, in the church because we don't actually know how to relate well to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so that's a whole, gosh, a whole other space of um, why is it that we have such a, a, a disconnect between our belief and our, our own bodies? And of course, there's like all this historical kind of philosophical these historical and philosophical trends that would kind of explain why we have moved away from and why we have distanced ourselves from our own bodies around the tension between flesh and the, the way in which flesh is used in scripture and, and, and then the relationship between sex and our bodies and shame and, and all of those things that, that have very, very concrete teachings and ideas that have been propagated throughout the Christian church and throughout history. And so there's that whole piece around, okay, there, there are certain ideas that have infiltrated our theology that have led to an imbalance and, and in terms of our relationship with our bodies and ultimately a, um, a, an unconscious rejection of our own bodies. But when I think about it uh, in terms of then like the impact of that and and the ways in which then we are kind of like hands tied behind our backs when, when it comes to actually dealing with and, and confronting and ultimately accessing the joy, accessing the power and the beauty and the freedom of being connected with our bodies in a, in a genuinely faith-filled way, in a genuinely connected way to our faiths. That is something that we need. And I, I do think that queerness can, is this like really beautiful entry point into that whole conversation. It's a terrifying one. Again, I think it's one that the church particularly can't <laughs> deal with sometimes or Christians can't deal with sometimes because queerness can, understandably, but also misguidedly, it's like queerness sucks, you know? And it's like, yes, and this is not about an action. This is about our bodies. This is about purpose. This is about trajectory and embodiment in and of itself. That word is saying more than our bodies. It is saying all, it, it's asking so many questions about whys. It's what is our body for? Where is it going? What is it doing? How is it engaging with the world? How is it engaging with other people? What are all the things that our bodies are capable of as human beings, these wonderful, extraordinary things that we can do in how we show up if we would just acknowledge the entirety of it, <laughs> you know? And, and it, it, it's, uh, it's a conversation, I think, that would really release us to um, a lot of different capacities for the way in which we could show up as, as communities of faith and as folks who are oriented towards reconciliation and towards healing. I, I think about this idea of, uh, and these, these references throughout scripture to the body as a metaphor for us of, you know, references to hands and feet, um, but also like a, a body of men, like many parts, you know, and 
there are many references to individual body parts, but certainly references to our bodies as a whole. And if we are the body, <laughs> then, then how can we be the body without having a relationship and a knowing of our bodies? How can we be the body of Christ, this really tossed around phrase that can start to mean absolutely nothing and will mean nothing if we don't even know what our body is, if we don't have a relationship with the, that embodiment idea of this trajectory of our bodies. It just becomes this phrase and it becomes, again, static. It lacks the, the dynamism that is, again, inherent to our bodies as well. Yeah, so again, like I just think about the loss that is, is happening, that has happened, and, and also the, the life that can come from this conversation that we were having before around queerness provides to the church and the gift that the kind of uncomfortable, disrupting gift of queerness in the church. And one of those certainly is to have a more holistic conversation or maybe the first conversation about embodiment. And then we can also inherently, just because of the way in which queerness has been rejected in the church and has been oppressed in the church, have a conversation about embodiment and oppression. And it's all interrelated in, in there. But first, it, it has to start with actually, maybe for the first time, but um, in reintroducing our own bodies to ourselves of, of what, what we are when we show up, the fullness of who we are when we show up in the real world. Kathy, I think you were just like, you preached a sermon. Yeah. You wove wow. <laughs> together all the threads. <laughs> like you made a call to action. Uh, this, is, this is the perfect place to end. I think. Yeah. It's, okay. like, it's, it's like a mic drop. I feel like if there's a mic right now, it's just like, yes. <laughs> that was power. That was you embodying power. So, mm -hmm. wow. Thank you so much, Kathy for taking it home, for bringing us back to our bodies, for talking queerness with us, for going on a journey really, I think, within this conversation, um, mm -hmm. which is so good. So I'm grateful that you could be with us and share it with us. And I guess for, as a wrap up for a final question, do you have any, any other thoughts you wanna share for people or anything to promote? Feel free. Yeah, I would just say uh, if you're reading a lot, if you're engaging with, uh, I, I know that it's difficult to meet with people right now, but there's a lot of good content out there. There's a lot of awful content out there. But um, if you follow folks, if you're on social media, if you're reading, follow and read folks of color. Follow and, and read um, Black and Indigenous folks, queer folks. They have a lot of things to offer us as a society that we have sorely been missing out on. And I think for a lot of us, we didn't even know that we were living quarter lives. And the richness that is there, if you're willing, if you are brave enough to confront your own self and to widen your experience of life, I encourage you to be brave and to be challenged and um, to really grow um, and be dynamic in that direction. It, it's, a, it's a really rewarding direction to go. Um, so find BIPOC and queer folks online and, and just read their stuff. Um, immerse yourself into a new world.
Resetting the Table is produced by Emma Reynards, and the intro music is by Sonia and Paul Gibbs. If you like what this podcast is about, consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash resetting the table. We think it's really important to amplify voices of color, and we hope you do too. For now, 多谢。谢谢。Thanks, and see you soon.